Welcome to Pastor's Class, a Bible study program brought to you by Tim Say Ministries and Crossover Church. We pray this podcast will help enrich and strengthen your walk with Jesus Christ, and that it will lead you to read and study the scriptures more often. For more information about Tim Say Ministries and Crossover Church, please visit www.crossoverchurch.tv or give us a call at 301-927-5620. Amen. Last week, we started our series on the five, for everything a season, the five prophetic stages of David's life. Now, when we began last week, we basically just laid a foundation. We didn't jump into David quite yet, but we laid an important foundation about seasons. One, first and foremost, in life, there will always be seasons. That that was an important foundation that we laid, that there's there's always going to be seasons in life. And that we have to understand whether it's a good season, a hard season, a happy season, God is still in the midst of it. And that as believers, we have got to get to a point that we understand that God is is bigger than just the good seasons in our life. God is, is big enough to handle every season in our life. That whether it's good or challenging, whatever, he is in charge of every season. And we, we, we focused on Genesis, the scripture that says, as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, seed time and harvest, day and night. The, the earth is going to continue and things will continue in that cycle. And when we realize that there's going to be seed time and harvest and day and night and cold and heat and summer and winter and the earth is continually moving and things are constantly changing and we have seasons of good and seasons of stress and seasons of, of where we, everything seems to go right and everything then seems to be a challenge, that even in those, regardless of what it is, there were some key things that we said we need to be mindful of. One, be mindful of the seeds you sow. Because harvest time is a coming. You sow good seeds, you get a good harvest. You sow fussy seeds, you get a fussy harvest. (laughs) Harvest time is coming. And we have to realize that. We realize that because we know that whatever season we're in, we're not going to be in forever. We need to live in expectation and preparation of the next season to come. I mean, don't, don't, don't get stuck wherever you are. And that can be good or bad. Don't get stuck there. Be in expectation that this, I mean, it's not going to always be this way. So God, help me prepare for the next season of my life. Yeah. Yeah. The next thing we said is that, and this is key, that you can bear fruit in every season. That's what Psalm 1 tells us. It says, the blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the God, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth fruit in every season. In every season. That people are looking at your life when you're in a rough season. They're not just, especially the unbeliever, they really want to see what you're going to do when, when, when life turns you a funny, a funny turn. They're looking at you more then than when you're in a good season. And that's your time to witness when, when everybody's complaining and everybody's getting pink slips and you can still say, but my God is a faithful God. That's bearing fruit, good fruit in a rough season. Finally, we said that seasons are essential to our spiritual and personal growth and development. It's how we grow. Just like babies grow, they grow because they go through different seasons of life. And then the last thing we said, even though I just said finally, there was one more, 
And that was there's good to be discovered in difficult seasons. That there is a way that God communes with those who are in challenges that I don't think we experience when everything is, is, is as we would wish it to be. Part of it, I think, has to do with us because we, when we are in a season that, that's stretching us, I mean, we, we make sure we get our devotion time in. We, we make sure we make it to, to prayer time and we make sure we get someone to touch and agree with us and we, we talk to her when we're in those challenging seasons. And so we, God uses those. There's good to be had in those as we see God in a way that we've never seen him before. We gave the example of Job that it was because of what he went through that he was able to say, oh, I heard about you. But now with my own eyes, I see you. Amen. So this week, we're going to jump into David. And before we get there, I just want to clarify that when we say the five prophetic seasons of David's life, why not just the five seasons of David's life? Why the five prophetic seasons? I really believe that they're the five prophetic seasons of David's life because when we look at David's life, we can see in the things that he went through, the seasons that we are going to have to go through that I really believe in some shape or form that every believer who is striving to know God's will and intention for their life is going to go through these types of seasons. They may be different. You probably won't be a shepherd, but you're going to go through different seasons in life that mirror what he went through and what we can learn from it. Now, the five prophetic seasons of David's life. Now, this month, we're only going to be talking about season one. We're going to spend this week and the next two weeks just talking about number one, which was Bethlehem, faithfulness in small things. Number two is Gibeah, the test of early promotion. Number three, Adullam, the cave of difficulty. Hebron, the beginnings of prophetic purpose. And Zion, the promises fulfilled. And that's where everybody wants to get to. <laughs> we want to go from anointing to Zion. And three minutes flat, God, you said it, now you done done it. But that's not how the, the story goes. So now let's look at Bethlehem, faithfulness in small things. How many of you were in service on Sunday? Amen. So y'all just, we just saved five minutes, all right? Because this story picks up right where our series with Saul ended. We, we realized that in this season, when we were talking about Saul and, and, and walking in your life-changing anointing, it ends with Saul had lost it completely. When, when you, you know you've lost it when you've sinned and you don't even realize that you've sinned. I mean, you can tell that's how far. It's different when an unbeliever doesn't realize they're walking in sin. But when as a believer you're walking in sin and making sinful choices and somebody brings it to your attention and you're still clueless, you've lost it. Saul had gotten to a lost it place. You know, and he said, but you didn't do what I said. He said, yeah, I did what you said. He's like, no, you didn't. What's this I hear in the background? You didn't do what I told you to do. I told you not to take the sheep. You took the sheep. I told you not to, not to take the spoils. You took the spoils. And is this the king that I told you to kill? Oh, but we wanted to give this as a sacrifice to God. But God said, that's not what I wanted. I want your obedience, not your sacrifice. And he's saying the same thing to us today. We always talk about what we're doing and what we're giving and how we're... God said, I want your obedience more than I want your sacrifice. I want you to do what I'm asking you to do the way I'm asking you to do it. 
because partial obedience is complete disobedience. So that's where we find Saul. And so Samuel was in a, a grief-stricken state because when you have invested your life in someone and you see them spiral out of control, it grieves you. And some of us have experienced that, and you've given, and you've sown, and you've prayed, and you were there at the rough stage, and then you just see them spout. He was grieving. But just as echoed in Ecclesiastes that we read last week, it's a time to grieve, and then it's a time to move on, to get your horn. God, where are you taking me to next? You can't stay in that grief. You have to move on. Because God is still working things out. He still has a plan. He's still doing things. And you can't get stuck in your grief and miss the next move of God. You can't get stuck in your grief and miss the next move of God. So this is where we pick up with David. Now, here's the thing that's so fascinating about this. While all of this is going on, the war with the Amalekites, Saul and his men disobeying God, stealing the sheep, taking the king. Then Samuel having to confront him, telling him, God has rejected you as king. You're not going to be king anymore. Then Samuel taking the initiative to kill King Agag, to follow through. All of this is going on, and David is completely clueless. He's sitting outside doing what he's done every day for the last however many. He has no idea that in a moment, in an instant, his life is getting ready to change forever. Isn't that how God does things? He woke up like he did every other day. He went to his job like he did every other day. He sat there with those few little sheep like he did every other day. And all along, in a moment, his life was getting ready to change. That's all right. Tomorrow morning, just get up like you do every morning. Go to your job like you do every morning. Put the bowl, the cereal in the bowl. Pour the milk on it like you do every morning. Put a little sugar in your coffee like you do every morning. But live in expectation that in a moment, in a moment, your life can change. He has no idea that all of this is going on. He's just living his life like he always has. And God is getting ready to do something. He's getting ready to shake some stuff up. Now, let's look at how we meet David. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's see how the Bible first introduces the would-be king. He who would one day unite all the scattered tribes who would be the king after God's own heart. This is our first introduction to David in scripture, and it comes in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 10. It says, thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. His name is not even mentioned yet. The way it reads in another translation, when, 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 when Jesse was asked, don't you have another son? He goes, it says yes, but he's just a little runt. He's just a little runt. So that's why I didn't even bother to, to, to call him. 
as Pastor said in, in this series, Samuel was like the most famous person in all of Israel. He had been leading the country for generations. So Samuel comes to your house and you don't even bother to get your youngest child? But he didn't. He's like, he, doesn't, he doesn't even, he doesn't even matter. This is your Bethlehem season. There's some things that happen in your Bethlehem season. It's not the prettiest season. It's not the most flattering season. But there's some great lessons to be learned in Bethlehem. Because there's great lessons to be learned in every season. One of the first lessons we learn in Bethlehem is that life is one of divine divine intentionality, not coincidence. Your life is one of divine intentionality and not coincidence. Let's look back. Now the Lord said to Samuel, going back even further, how long will you grieve over Saul? This is the beginning of of 1 Samuel 16. Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, For I have selected a king for myself among his sons. When I say that your life is intentional and that God operates in intentionality, it was not a coincidence that David was born and living in Bethlehem. That was not a coincidence. It was not by chance that his father was Jesse. That wasn't by chance. And if we go back several generations, It was not by coincidence that several generations prior that there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. And a a dear husband by the name of Elimelech took his wife and his two sons and they moved to Moab to escape the famine in Bethlehem. It wasn't a coincidence that once they got to Moab, their sons would marry Moabite women. It was then not a coincidence that both the husband and the sons would both die, and Naomi would be left with two Moabite daughters-in-law. And it was not by chance or coincidence that one of those daughters-in-law would decide that when she was going to go back to Bethlehem, that she was going to abandon everything she knew to follow her mother-in-law. Have you ever heard of such? You knew that had to be God. I mean, who does that? And so she leaves everything. She said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm leaving. Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. All along, God has intentionality in what's happening. And that only God could intend for a grief-stricken widow, twice over both the woman and the mother, then to meet a relative who would then marry this widowed woman, who happened to be the kinsman redeemer, who would then give birth to Obed, who would then give birth to Jesse, who would later give birth to David, so that when Jesus, when God is saying that there's a king in Bethlehem, that all along he had this thing worked out. He's intentional. He's intentional. Before Samuel was born, he had a plan for David's life. When Hannah was still crying at the altar, praying for a son, he had a plan for David's life. 
what? He's intentional. They didn't know all of that was going on. She was still grieving and hurting, and God is saying, if you just hold on. And then God's plan is so big and so intentional, I guarantee you're not going to see all of it. Because, see, they didn't get to see all of this. And then that same intentional God, some thousand plus years later, would send his own son to the very same Bethlehem, not just to redeem a family, but to redeem the world. He's intentional. No, no, we would think this stuff, just things don't just happen. He's an intentional God. And that's one of the things that we can learn in this Bethlehem season, that God had a plan for your life. He had a plan. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. Amen for the whistle. <laughs> Never sure what that was about, but praise the Lord. <laughs> Amen. I don't get whistled at office, so I'll take it. All right. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 1. God had a plan for your life from the very beginning. God had a plan for your life. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. It reads in the Message Bible, he says, I knew all about you before you saw the light of day. I had holy plans for you. Look at somebody and say, God had holy plans for you. A prophet to the nations, that's what I had in mind. Before your dad winked at your mom, God had holy plans for you. Before you were conceived in your mother's womb, he had holy plans for you. Even if you had unholy people that conceived you, God had holy plans for your life. God said, this has nothing to do with man's choices and man's decisions. If I allow you to be conceived, I've got holy plans, set-apart plans, consecrated plans for your life. He got a plan. Before your, while your parents were still deciding whether they wanted children, he had a plan for you. And in the midst of all that goes on, we can forget God had a plan. You weren't a mistake. You weren't a happenstance. You weren't just some fly by night. He said, no, from the foundation of the earth, it was intentional for you to be here. And sometimes you just got to look when you're in the midst of those seasons and say, God is intentional about me. God is intentional about my life. Before I had a name, before my mother knew she was carrying me, God had a plan. And it was a good plan, a holy plan for my life. The next thing we learn in this Bethlehem season is that God has a plan for your life. Let me tell you the difference between God had a plan for your life and God has a plan for your life. Before you were here, God had a plan for your life. But you all know a lot happens once we get here. <laughs> We, 
begin to sometimes in the course of life make poor choices, poor decisions. We don't always do and make the right steps that God is leading us to take. And we can sometimes find ourselves taken away from the will of God. We can find ourselves outside of God's perfect plan for our life. And so we're going to look at another well-known scripture. We're still in Jeremiah. It starts in Jeremiah 1, but look what he says in Jeremiah 29, 11. I know you know it before we even get to it. He says, for I know the plans that I have for you. But let's understand the context of that. This was after they had royally messed up. They had royally messed up. They were in a season of exile. This is coming after years of sin, years of disobedience, years of rejection of God's ways, years of not doing what God has said, years of doing life on their own. All of anything that they could have done, they did wrong. God said, don't worship idols. They worship idols. Don't abuse each other. They abuse each other. Everything he said not to do, they did. And he kept giving them chance after chance after chance. And finally he said, I'm done. I'm done. And he allowed their enemies to take captive. And now they are in captivity. They are not a free people. They are not a, 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 a blessed people as we would think. But God said, even in your missteps, even in your mistakes, even in you taking a wrong turn, if you look at me and trust me, I still have a plan for your life. I had a plan, and I still have a plan. As long as you are still breathing and you are willing to turn from your wickedness, God said, I have a plan for your life. I have a plan. Let's read all of that. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God said, I'm waiting to be found by the one who's lost. I'm waiting to be found by the one who doesn't know their way. He said, I'm, I'm here waiting to be found. I had a holy plan for your life, and if you come, I still have a plan for your life. It doesn't matter where you're straight out of, whether you were born here, which are who your parents were. God has a plan for your life. And the reality is, just like it wasn't a coincidence that David was born in Bethlehem, it's not a coincidence that you were born where you were born and you were born to whom you were born. That all of that, God said, I've been, I've been working this stuff out for generations. It's before you, it's while you're here, and it's beyond you. But you've got to trust me in every season of your life, even in the Bethlehem season. That Bethlehem season where you have to really understand that God, God is intentional. He has a plan, even when you were like David, just doing your daily routine Monday. Because see, right now, he doesn't know that, that all chaos has broken out. He doesn't know that Saul has been dethroned. He's just doing. He doesn't know that God had him on his mind, but he's going to find out real soon. But in this Bethlehem season, the next thing, the power and necessity of solitude is what we learn. We learn the power and necessity of solitude. It's good to have people around. 
It's good to have friends. I love to fellowship. But it's also good to sometimes not have people around. Now, here's the thing we want to understand. Let's go back to Samuel 16. Let's look at verse 6. Let's see what happened here. 1 Samuel 16, starting at verse 6. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Background. So here, Samuel has gone in obedience to Bethlehem. He knows he's supposed to go to the house of, of Jesse. Now, here's the thing, that, that things like this, when you read this, if, if God could be that specific, leave where you are, get the horn of oil, go to Bethlehem, go to Jesse's house, he only had to say one more thing, and get David. He didn't. He said, get the horn of oil, go to Bethlehem, Go to Jesse's house. Why didn't he just tell Samuel the whole story? Because the reality is we never know the whole story. God wants to keep us in tune to his will, his move, and his spirit. And you know why else? I think God likes to shock us. Can you imagine Samuel? They look, oh yeah, this guy, oh man, this look at this dude. Oh, he's great. He looks tall. He looks good. Oh, this has got to be the one. No, that's not the one. Oh, this one. Oh, look at him. He, he's, he's, nope, not that one. No, this is, this is Samuel, the great prophet, the great judge. Let's look what happens. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. So that means even those of us who are, are spiritual and we are called of God, that we can get caught up in the wrong things. We can miss sometimes God's greatest gift because it doesn't look like what we thought it was supposed to look like. He had to tell him, he said, remember Samuel, don't get caught up in what he looks like. He probably said, remember how good Saul looked when we first got him? <laughs> this good looking fella, he just all the way messed up. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. That was one of Jesse's other sons. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, nope, Lord hadn't chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? Now here's one thing Samuel knew. He's like, I know God told me to come to Bethlehem. And I know God told me to come to Jesse's house. And I know this is Bethlehem, and I know you are Jesse, and I know none of these God has put his approval on. You got to know what God tells you. Don't start shifting stuff because it doesn't look the way you thought it was going to look. Now, you, there's some things, I know that we're still trying to hear God and see God, but there's some things that you know God has made clear to you in his word, just because it gets a little bit shaky and a little bit unsettled, don't question what you know God has already spoken into your life. So he said, because I know God is right. 
So you, Jesse, must be the one that's not doing something right. I know I'm at the right house. Do you have another son? That's how confident Samuel was about the word of God in his life. Are we that sure of God's word in our life? So that even when we have upheavals and things that upset us and bring tears to our eyes, are we still confident that God is for us and not against us because his word says that he is? Then when upheaval happens, we can still say, I am the head and I'm not the tail, even though I may look like it. Are we that confident? He's like, I'm not going to shift. This is where I'm supposed to be. If you're on a job and you know that's where you're supposed to be, don't let a nasty coworker deter you from your purpose. Don't let a disgruntled supervisor keep you from fulfilling what God has called. If you know, if you gave a testimony, stood up, and I know God put me here, don't let trials make you begin to question God's divine ordering of your steps. Because it doesn't look the way that you thought it was going to look. And so, so Samuel's like, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know what God said. Sometimes you got to say that to yourself. I know God put me here. I know that this is the marriage that God called me to. I know that these children are a gift from God. I know God said that that fruit would bear good. I know, I know. And you got to say those things, even when it doesn't look like it. He said, you got another son. Yeah, this, this little boy out there taking care of them a few little sheep. He said, that's the one. That's who I want. But let's understand something in that simple line. There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. We're talking about the power and necessity and solitude. See, a lot of times when we think of David's shepherd life, we think he was like Huck Finn. Like he had his, like, you know, his cut off jeans and straw hat sitting under a tree letting the sheep you know and actually that's how some of the pictures look in the Sunday school lessons he's just like you know he's in chill mode you know sheep walking around got a little staff look happy. that was not the life of a shepherd it's a nice picture but it's not the life of a shepherd it was a hard life it was a hard life in fact historians say that for the most part families would use a servant to be the shepherd of the sheep if they could afford it. But when they couldn't afford it, they gave it to the, to the youngest. Anybody hear the youngest? <laughs> right, see? <laughs> the ones you can push around, just give it to the youngest. Somebody got to do it. I'm not doing it. You know? And so that's why he had it. He was the youngest. Nobody wanted to do it. It wasn't a fun job. It wasn't a good job. There was no, there was, it wasn't any glory in it. There was no glamour to it. And because of the nature of the job, most of the day and evening, he was by himself. He was outside by himself, just him and the sheep. They don't talk. They don't listen too well either. <laughs> And that was his life for years. This wasn't like a one-week job. It wasn't a temp job. This was his life. This is what he did day in and day out by himself. So much so that when the most famous man in Israel comes to his house, they don't even bother to come get him. 
Because out of sight, out of mind. He's alone. And a couple things can happen when you're alone. You can get into a state of, of, of loneliness or depression or something miraculous can happen to you. And that's what happened to David. In all those years of solitude, something miraculous happened. He fell in love with God. Because there was nobody else to talk to. It was just him, and he was outside in nature, and he began to get an awareness of God like never before. And so when you're in your Bethlehem season and you find yourself in seasons of solitude, and you find yourself kind of almost wanting, like I just, there's good to happen in your season of solitude. One, it matures your relationship with God. And the reason I say it matures your relationship with God we can understand that, that David had a relationship with God, and so did his family. They were raised in a, a traditional Hebrew household. They were taught the word of God. They were taught the law. So I, he had a foundation. His brothers had a foundation. But as we continue in the study of David's life, we'll see something in David that we don't see in his brothers. And it has to do with the ability for him to just be alone. Look at someone and say, it's okay to be alone sometimes. It's okay to be alone sometimes. I didn't say ostracize yourself from people. I didn't say don't fellowship, don't come to the cookout. I didn't say all of that. Pastor I said, I need to be alone, so I'm not coming to the picnic this year. I didn't, I didn't say that. I said that there's nothing wrong with finding just to be alone where you can't hear anything but God. You can't have, hear your sister girlfriend telling you what you should and should not do. You don't have to listen to the, the media telling you how horrible the world is, how everything's getting ready to blow up and fall apart. And it's just you and God. And you can just say, God, what, what, what are you saying to me in this season, in this confusion, in this, like, God, what are you saying? How do we know it matured this relationship? Turn to Psalm 8. We're going to start at verse 3. When I consider, this is David, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, see, he's outside, which you have ordained, something hits him. He said, I'm sitting here day in, day out, looking at this stuff. And it's amazing. And then I think, what is man? that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him yet you made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty you make him to rule over the works of your hands you put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen 
and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He ain't asking God for anything. He's just like sitting out here, hearing the birds, looking at the sky, seeing the sun come up, watching it go down in the same day. You are an amazing God. And so amazing that you can control all of this. What am I really? And so even he's sitting here, he said, this may be a stinky job, but I got a pretty good life. And not only do I have a good life, I have an amazing God. That happens when it's just you and God. He's just talking to God. He said, who am I? Who am I? Who are we? Have you, who are we that God even... The same God who makes sure the sun rises and sets listens when you're crying. That amazes me. The same God who's concerned about earthquakes and turmoils and, and national upheaval is concerned when you have a pain in your back. The same God. And David says, you're amazing. In that season of solitude, when you're in your Bethlehem season and, and life is small and you don't have all the accolades and the praise and everyone, no one's calling your name and telling you good job and well done and no one's singing a song about you <laughs> like they would do later. There's no one singing David. No one's doing that. It's just him and God. But this is when he gets to know God. So that when they start singing the song, it doesn't go to his head because he remembers who his God is. Because he said, before y'all were singing, I was out there with them dirty sheep. It was just me and God. It's a good season. It's a lonely season sometimes. It's a small, it's not a glamorous season, but it's a good season. Not only does it mature your relationship with God, It develops the worshiper in you. I honestly believe, and this is just from observation, there are people who have sometimes may struggle to worship in the context when we're, we're here. If you learn to worship at home when it's just you and God, you won't have a hard time worshiping in front of people. Because when it's just you and God, you, you, can, you lose yourself. And when that spirit of worship wakes up in you, you could care less who is anyone or anywhere around you. It, it just it develops something in you. Turn the Psalms back. We still go back to Psalms 8. We're going to read the first part of that this time. And it says from the mouth, verse 2, I'm sorry, Psalms 8, verse 2. Remember, in this season of solitude, it develops the worshiper in you. Psalms 8:2, from the mouth of infants and nursing, excuse me, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy the to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Reading it from the Living Bible, you have taught the little children to praise you perfectly. May their example shame and silence your enemies. 
you were born to worship. It was part of that plan when he said, I had a holy plan for your life. Part of that holy plan was to worship God. You don't have to make little children worship God. When, when we do VBS here, you don't have to make them. The little ones, they are, they're dancing and they're waving and they're singing and they're jumping. By the time they get to be about them 12, it's like, Something begins, begins to happen because now is the season they have to develop their own relationship with God. It's not just what they see. Something's beginning to shift, and they have to, they have to develop a personal relationship with God. See, but it was in them. All we got to do is show them the tape from five years ago, and they were, they were dancing and, and jumping around because it, it's just in them to worship God. It's in them. But when we get, begin to go through life, even as adults, we become so self-conscious about what we look like, about what we're wearing, about what size we are, about how our voice sounds, that we focus more on us than we are on the source of our worship. But when it's just you and God, the worshiper that was created in you in the womb, comes to life. And there's nobody. It's just you and God, and you're just worshiping. You're not asking him for anything. You're not begging. You're just worshiping. And so then when you come into the assembly of faithful, that practice then comes into true life. Let's look at it. It's Psalms. Once again, the other thing, as I said last week, that we have so much testimony on David in the books of the Bible, and then we have a whole nother history of him just in his Psalms. But Psalms 29, and that's the last scripture that we're going to read tonight. Psalms 29, understanding what happened to David in this Bethlehem season when he was a shepherd, when he was alone, when he was in solitude, when it was just him and God. And I really believe it's those years, it's that time when he developed his relationship with God, that's what enabled him to defeat Goliath. Because if you, when we get to that part of his, his season and his story, he didn't go against Goliath because he thought he was strong enough and powerful enough. He went against Goliath because he knew who he, his God was. I said he was willing to go against Goliath because he knew who his God was. And he was still tending sheep at the time. And that's why they asked him, why are you even out here? He said, what are y'all afraid of? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's like, this is not a covenant person. Who is this? And you know, every man sit down and shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. But he already knew that God was bigger than Goliath. He knew that God was bigger than Goliath. When did he learn that? By himself, standing there with those sheep, and it was he and God. He said, if God can keep me out here by myself all these years and give me peace and joy and prosperity, even in this season, what is a giant? Get to know God in this season. He longs to know you. Psalms 29. I love this because we do have some psalms in different seasons of David's life where he just sounds, he's really begging. I, he's... But this is one of the ones where he's just 
exclaiming and acclaiming the majesty of God. And what a better note to end on. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. How could he talk about the voice of the Lord? Because that's all he had here. He was in a season, that's all he could hear. And he understood the voice of the Lord is awesome. It is great, it is powerful. It reveals majesty and truth. And it put him in a place of communion with God. Your Bethlehem season, small beginnings, but God is doing a great work. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Thank you for listening to Pastor's Class. We hope you enjoyed this program. For more messages and Bible study teachings, please visit www.crossoverchurch.tv or give us a call at 301-927-5620. If you live in the D.C., Maryland, or Virginia area, come visit us at our home location, 5340 Baltimore Avenue, Hyattsville, Maryland, 20781. Pastor's Class is a weekly Bible study that occurs Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. at our home location. We would love for you to join us. May God bless you and guide you as you continue to study to show thyself approved in the grace of Christ Jesus.